You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. How many of you were um, attended one of the uh, one of the services this past week with Nick Vujacic? Took, took a shot at that. I, it was funny, Dan. You mentioned about nine thousand people. Now, here's the thing that really amazed me. Cause we were there for you were there four nights. I was there three nights helping out and, and serving. And every night he asked, "How many of you have never seen me face to face before?" Every night he asked that, and probably about ninety-five percent of all the people raised their hands and said, "I've never seen you before." So what that tells me is of that nine thousand, ninety-five percent of them were new. I mean, so it wasn't like we were getting the same crowd night after night after night. Um, and so that was phenomenal. Um, and so it was it was a very powerful week. And those of you who have heard him, um, just the story of his life, um, but also just the challenge of being a witness to those that we live with, live among. Um, none of us, after listening to Nick, none of us have an excuse. <laughs> you know, I mean, we can't blame it on you, I don't feel good. Really, you've got two arms and two legs. I mean, here's a guy who had no limbs, um, but just the boldness of, of his sharing his faith, realizing that life here on earth, that which we care so much about, is so temporary. Um, and when we're talking about eternity, there's so much more that uh, God wants to do in our lives. So. This morning, um, we're starting uh, a series. This is week one of a four-week series on relationships. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and we need to remember or realize that relationships are at kind of the core of our identity. Um, you think of just God himself lives in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists in relationship. We need to realize that the Ten Commandments are really not about law, they're about relationships. The first four deal with our relationship with God, the final six deal with our relationship, how we treat and relate to one another. The Old Testament is predicated, is built on the idea of a covenant relationship between God and His people. The New Testament about between God and his people within the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is full of references about how we're to relate with one another. And so relationships are very much at the heart of who we are. In fact, I think a case may be made that the key to life really is based on the manner in which we manage our relationships. Generally speaking, when the relationships are good, life is generally good. And when relationships are bad, Life usually isn't uh, as good as we would like it. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with or talking about different aspects of relationships. And this morning, we're going to be looking at specifically this idea of marriage. Now, can I be honest with you? When I first heard of uh, the topic for today was marriage, I wasn't very excited. In fact, I was a little bit uh, uncomfortable. And here's why. I called my son, um, just I was talking to him this week, and uh, he's, he's 30 years old, and I said, hey, am I, I'm preaching this week, and he said, what's the sermon about? I said, marriage. I said, what, is, what do you think about that? Well, my, my son is single, and he said, whenever I hear a sermon about marriage, I almost immediately just kind of tune out, because it's not about me. It's not, it's not really about if I can't identify. <laughs> I said, oh, so great. So, I mean, so if anyone is single, they've, you've got dealing with that. Now, here's the other thing, though. That's the good 
case. He told me he's, he's got friends who actually attend churches where single people actually feel somehow insufficient. Like because they're not married that they really haven't found life or can't be happy and they're somehow they, they're not quite there yet. And, and so I was like, great. So you, you've got that risk there. Then you've got other people who are single because they've lost someone. They don't want to be single. And really what was a kicker for me is that inevitably when you have a sermon about marriage, you have to touch on the topic of divorce. Now, I don't know your status or your history of, for most of you, but statistically speaking, I can pretty much be certain that some of you have experienced that pain in your life. So, now you can understand why this topic was not one I was really excited about uh, to, to preach. But here's the thing. Here's where I came to. The fact that so many have experienced the pain that comes from marriage tells me this is a topic the church needs to talk about. And we probably need to talk about it a bit more. So, if you're single, um, I promise to be gracious. I promise not to make you feel insufficient. And, uh, you know, so don't tune me out. Perhaps maybe it's something that you can use later on in life. Um, if you are married, hang on. Here we go. All right. If you have your Bibles, now we don't have the benefit of a screen, so I can't project what I'm reading. So if you have a phone, iPad, or an actual paper version of the Bible, um, which is uh, sometimes very uncommon these days. I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 24. <clears throat> the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he had, from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for uh, just the lessons and for the wisdom and for the understanding we get uh, when, we, when we take time to read and to digest what's being said. So Lord, I ask for that this day. Uh, the next few moments that we look at this first marriage, uh, as well. may it be, be insightful to all of us. May we walk away from here today with a better understanding not only of the marriage relationship, but Lord, we got our relationship with you as well. May we have a better sense of your love and your compassion and mercy and just uh, just your, your love for us. So we commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Comments about the text before we um, jump into some other things here. 
Did you notice that the sequence of creation is different in chapter 2 than it is in chapter 1? In chapter 1, we see the animals are created, and then Adam and Eve are created together. In chapter 2, we see that Adam is created, and then the animals, and then Eve. Now, I point this out not to discuss creation. I'm not wanting to get into that discussion per se, but rather to suggest that the author of Genesis is probably trying to communicate something. There's, there's a reason why that was done that way. He's wanting to emphasize different things. So that's one, one thing about the text. Verse 23, uh, when it says, this is now, in some of your translations, um, some of them actually say, finally, bone of my bone. So this, you know, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Some translations say, you know, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. If it was done today, Adam would have said something like, it's about stinking time. <laughs> and he would have used the word stinking. Okay, so that would have been part of it. Adam was excited, and that's not really conveyed in this text. You almost kind of have almost this formality of things. The way that the word that's used there, he was incredibly excited about this new development. In chapter 2, remember, God brings the animals around. So, well, hopefully one of them will be a helping. One of them will be what does it for Adam. And all the animals combined didn't do it. woman comes by, he's like, wow, here we go. This is going to be a great ride. So there's a sense of passion and excitement for, for Adam's wife at this point in time. <clears throat> Notice anything different about verse 24? Those who can read the text. From whose perspective is that verse written? It's not God. It's not Adam. People who were involved in biblical studies refer to this voice that's talking there as a narrator. How many of you watch TV shows today, like it's about, like, whether it's a sitcom, it's usually one person's life story, and so you have the dialogue going, but every now and then, you know, the, the, the talking on, in between the characters stops, and you hear this voice, the narrator talking, the person kind of, because it's a flashback, and so you hear this, that's what's happening here in this voice. Where we're getting this history, here's what happened, bing, 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 and all of a sudden, in one instant, he goes from history to present. He says, all right, here's, here's what this means. And what's, what's interesting is, is immediately right after that one sentence in verse 25, he jumps right back into the history again. So we have this history moving to the present analysis or observation, and then he jumps back right into the history again. So why, the question is for me, why does the narrator in this case do that? Typically, it's because there's something that's very significant that's just happened. And in this case, the writer of Genesis wants to make certain that we don't miss it. He was saying that what occurred in the first marriage has implications for all of us. That being the case, I want to use three words from verse 24 and expound on them a little bit this morning and kind of develop a few thoughts about what it says about marriage. So, the first word is leave. About a half hour before uh, Bets and I were getting married, uh, our wedding day, um, we're off, my grooms and I are off in the side room, and Betsy's dad comes in. He pulls me aside. Now, her dad is one of the most you know, positive, affirming, just kindest people 
you'll ever meet. Just, just amazing guy, just supportive. And so he pulls me aside, and so I'm expecting this comment, you know, 30 minutes before the wedding, like, you know, we are so happy you're going to be in our family, or some, or you know, take good care of my one and only daughter, you know, something to that effect. Instead, my father-in-law leans in, looks me in the eye, and says, "Now remember, there's no givebacks." <laughs> Verse 24 tells us that a man is to leave his father and mother. Now here's the thing. It's not an issue of proximity. He's not telling sons to actually leave their parents and move out of the house. In fact, culturally speaking, we know that it was standard for the sons to stay nearby, if not even in the same house even after they were married. So you could have multiple family units living under one roof. And if they did live under one roof, they, they lived very close by. That was the standard. What's being talked about here is not an issue of proximity. The reference to leave is talking about a matter of priority. Within many cultures, even today, honoring your parents is the highest human obligation next to honoring God. <clears throat> And what this verse tells us is that the marriage relationship must take priority over every other earthly relationship. I hate shopping. I just shoot me now kind of idea. And um, the idea of going from store to store looking for something is just painful to me just to even think about. That's why, and that even applies to online shopping too. Um, and I think that's why sites like Amazon, where you just go to one place, one site, find what you want, you know, and, and you're good to go. In this regard, I'm more of a hunter. I know what I want, I go find it, shoot it, clean it, take it home, and I'm done. years I've observed that some men and women approach the marriage like a hunting trip. I still vividly remember the days when Betsy and I were dating. We both attended the same college and I, would, I was always leaving little notes for her down at the bottom of her dorm. I couldn't wait to see her again whenever that would be. Trying to study together was an exercise in futility. I couldn't concentrate. It was, I got nothing done. And, um, and if you talk to Betsy, Betsy, hopefully she would recall similar emotions and accents on her part. Um, I'm not going to ask her. Uh, so what were we doing? In the context of what I'm saying, we were hunting each other. We were pursuing one another. We were being thoughtful of each other, doing things we knew the other person would appreciate, trying to endear ourselves to the other person. Now fast forward a few years, what's it look like? Kids are now on the scene. Work and career demands are starting to pile up, responsibilities. And many of us have stopped the pursuit. Generally speaking, it's not a conscious decision to stop pursuing. In many cases, it's the unconscious acceptance of the idea that we've caught the other person, therefore we no longer need to pursue them. That idea, plus all of the activities and responsibilities of life, cause us to gradually take our foot off the gas pedal. We stop pursuing the one relationship that matters the most. 
If you find the passion and energy in your marriage is fading, you should probably ask yourself, have I stopped pursuing my spouse? And if so, you need to ask yourself, what can I do for my spouse to demonstrate that I value our marriage? So, the first word is leave. The second word is cleave. Um, I have to explain a little bit, because the translation I read doesn't use the word cleave. It actually uses the word united instead of cleave. Uh, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And, and some older versions, translation says, and the husband is cleaves to his wife. Um, united doesn't rhyme with leave. So we're going to cleave. Okay, so it's, it's, uh, you got that? Okay. That's a semantics thing here. So uh, it's a memorable. I, I have to. I have to. Tell you, I was actually joking with Pastor Farrell about this. We go, really, leave, leave, and the third one will make even more sense. And I said, but here's the thing. It is so memorable. I can't get these words out of my mind. So um, now that I've mentioned that, you'll uh, be paying. You'll notice as well. It is memorable. So that's why we use the word cleave. Um, actually, the word can also be understood as sticky. Ironically, a man leaves his father and mother and sticks to his wife. Now, the idea conveys a sense of permanence to the relationship. In fact, it's the same word used to describe the land the people of Israel were about to inhabit as they entered the promised land following their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. <coughs> the land would be theirs forever. It's also used to describe the covenant relationship between God and Israel. In this context, the Bible portrays marriage as a holy covenant that is never to be broken. I think our culture too often portrays marriage in a devastating manner. It's either an out-of-date institution that we can ignore, or it's a restrictive, life-choking prison, or it's an arrangement based primarily on passion, and when the passion's gone, you can end the relationship. The fact is, marriage is very hard, and at times incredibly complex, yet it's the most rewarding and fulfilling relationship one could ever have. So the question we should ask ourselves then is, how do we cleave, or how do we stick to our spouse? A few thoughts. <clears throat> one is we should address the issues that bring division. A few weeks ago, uh, the ABS light, uh, the ABS brake, the warning light went on in my car, my ABS brakes, telling me that somewhere in my brake relationship within my car there was a problem. And <clears throat> so what did I do? I ignored it. <laughs> and you know what happened? About a week later, the light went off. <laughs> The problem, at least my current perception of the problem, went away on its own. That is not the point, that's actually the opposite of the point I'm trying to make here. When it comes, some of us take that approach to relationships. If we just ignore it, it'll get better. Human relationships are nothing like automobile problems. And I, I have no doubt my great flight's gonna come on again here in, in a short time because it, that probably is a problem there. But with human relationships, they don't go away if we ignore them. What happens if we ignore them? They get worse, they get worse don't they? 
they get worse. And <laughs> Betsy's literally said this to me. We can have a 10 minute conversation now or a two hour argument later. What do you want? <laughs> okay, I get it. All right, so we can deal with this now, be on the in 10 minutes, or it's gonna get worse and it's gonna be, and I get it. Okay, and she's right. That's the way human relationships are, aren't they? They don't get better if we ignore them. They, uh, they may go under the surface and they not, may not be visible, but they're still there. So that's one thought about being sticky. Another thought is we need to live with grace and forgive others while addressing the problem. Uh, Betsy's often said this over the years, you need to fight for the relationship. Not fight in the relationship, fight for it. Deal with the problem, not the person. Over the, Betsy and I early on made an agreement um, that no matter how upset we got with the other person, neither one of us would ever use the word divorce in our conversations with one another. And to this day, we've, we've held to that commitment. Um, because what it does, it plants ideas in, in our minds. And all of a sudden, it creates... Um, that's not a good way to address the problem. Another idea is we need to make time for ongoing communication. I've had, I know some people, I have a professor in school that they're at the time he's probably in his late 60s, and he said he and his wife, every Thursday night was date night for them ever since they first got married. So we're talking probably 40 years. Every Thursday night for them was date night. Uh, I, you know, they did, did whatever they did. I thought that was pretty amazing. Betsy and I have never done that. So some people, that's a consistent thing they do. We've never really had that opportunity or we've never taken, we've never made that opportunity. But here's, we have recognized that when that there do need to be times for us to connect. And so if you don't have that regular time, sometimes it's a matter of just recognizing the moments when it's needed and not being afraid or not, not letting life get in the way, but making those a priority. So those are three things about being sticky. All right. So how do we need to think about this idea of cleave if we've been divorced? Now there's a whole lot of factors to consider. And I don't have nearly enough time to really address this sufficiently. Uh, so let me just share two thoughts about this divorce in this context. My first thought is this. More often than not, the marriage covenant is broken long before the divorce. Whether it's abuse or adultery or neglect, the actions of the other person can dictate an outcome you did not want. While the divorce is indeed painful, it's an outcome for which you are not responsible. <laughs> That's one thought. Another, my second thought is this. I've talked with many people who have told me that they were a very different person before they came to Christ. And they have things in their past they wish they could change. And while they can never escape the repercussions of their actions, they have come to a place of acceptance and God, of God's forgiveness. And they, they've come to a place of acceptance and they've received God's forgiveness in their life. And they've also made a conscious decision and conscious efforts not to repeat the same mistakes in their present relationships. 
again, there's, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I just I want to say that. So our first word is leave. Our second word is cleave. And those of you who have already looked at the bottom of your outlines know that our third word is weave. <laughs> the last part of verse 24 says, and they become one flesh. Now the idea of becoming one flesh goes far beyond relational intimacy. The idea here actually has genetic connotations. If you're a father and have children, they will always be your children. Nothing can change that. If you have siblings, brothers and sisters, they will always be your brother and sister. Nothing, no circumstance, nothing can change that. Time and distance will never change that relational genetic connection. They are connected to each other forever. So for the husband and wife, their identity becomes woven into a new identity. So while the covenant aspect of the marriage relationship is immediate, the relational weaving is ongoing until death do us part. And it requires ongoing investment on the part of both people. The marriage relationship will be what the two people de determine it will be. It can be really good or it can be really bad. It really depends upon how they invest in it. So how can we weave a vibrant, lasting marriage? A few more random thoughts. One, build a foundation of trust through honesty. Believe the best in your spouse. Three words that have served me well over the years is assume positive intent. Assume they tried to do the right thing, they just got it wrong. So many times we run into problems and we begin to assign intent. In other words, you tried to hurt my feelings, or you intentionally were that just, and all of a sudden the situation becomes exponentially bigger in our minds. Assume positive intent. Assume they tried to do the right thing, just made a mistake, and approach it that way. So instead of going to them and, and, and accusing them, and you're all full of emotion and anger, you say, hey, help me understand this. Here's how I came across. Is that really what you were trying to communicate? Well, no. Well, well you, know, you have a much different conversation. than like, what is wrong with you? You know, we start calling people. Assume positive intent. Number two, try to be the biggest servant in the house. Marriage is not a 50-50 arrangement. It's a 100-100 arrangement. You want, you want, it's, you're committing yourself 100%. It's not a 50-50 type of thing. We have a, a neighbor, I'll call him Mike, who uh, they're having marriage problems. And uh, I'll ask periodically, I've asked Mike, you know, how are things going, and his, Response is always in reference to how she appreciates him. So, so he'll respond, you know, hey, things are going better. You know, yesterday she said she appreciated what I did. And it's always based upon her appreciation of what he's doing. And I could never get him to really understand the fact that the measure of a marriage was the degree to which he invested in her. 
Men, serve your wife. One of the things I've always taken pride in is that outside of giving birth to our kids, there isn't one household chore I haven't done or I'm not willing to do. Change diapers, I wash, I even do laundry and get stains out, you know? I'll iron my own shirts. Um, so those things that I'm, I'm happy to do because that's just part of who we are. That's just part of what I feel like I need to do as the husband. Wives, honor your husband. Come back to this, assume positive consent. Assume the best in your spouse. It's amazing when, when husbands serve their wives and wives honor their husbands, when they both do that to the best of their ability, it's amazing what that marriage relationship looks like. Lastly, be grateful for your spouse and don't take them for granted. <clears throat> Keep your foot on the gas pedal. Keep up the pursuit. One of the things I'll, always, I'll ask Betsy frequently is, uh, what can I do to fill your love tank? What do you need? What's, how many of you are familiar with the book Love Languages? What do you find if you if you not? It's, it's a fairly quick read. It's not a it's not a detailed book, but it basically tells us that each of us has different ways that we feel loved. Some of us are just words of affirmation. If that does more to recharge me, or if you, you know, for Betsy, it's quality time. The best thing I so here's one that's great. I don't have to buy her stuff for her to love. The best thing, so it's really inexpensive for me. Um, uh, so if hers was gift giving, then I'd be in trouble. But hers is quality time. So the best thing I can do for her is say, hey, let's talk. You, know, you, got, you got a few minutes, can we chat about this? And, and find out what their love language is. Invest in them under in the ways that they feel valued and appreciated. And when we can do that, we're keeping our foot on the gas pedal. We're keeping that pursuit up. And we're keeping it ongoing in the life of our marriage. And when we can do that, great things can happen. That's the result. So let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And uh, thank you for what an exciting thing we see in Genesis chapter 2. From the very beginning, the first relationship is really a marriage relationship. And what value that has in our culture, what, what value needs to have in our culture today. Father, when we think about the families we grew up in, the, the fathers and the husbands who modeled behaviors for us and some of the things that we've done in our own lives. And Lord, we recognize that we, we oftentimes need help. So, Father, I, my prayer would be for any who here this morning who are maybe struggling in an area or two of their marriage, that first they would find encouragement, they would find hope in you, and, Lord, that they would begin to put into, into action certain steps that would cause that passion and that energy and that excitement about the, about the relationship to return. Father, again, we're just very conscious of the fact that we need you, and uh, we continue to call upon you to help and intercede on our behalf. So, Father, I ask for your blessing and for your favor to rest upon each marriage that is in this room, both present and future. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.
For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.